Well, hello. Welcome to Fountain Springs. Uh, for those of you who are joining us at East, those who are downtown, those online, those who are in the uh, overflow area uh, here at our West location, we're just so glad that you're all here today. My name is Nicholas. I'm one of the pastors uh, here at the church and I have the great privilege of sharing some thoughts with you today. Today, we are going to have a conversation about the idol of the self. And in many ways, this conversation is a culmination of the previous five weeks of this series about appetites, about desires. And so throughout the message, I'm going to be kind of like weaving in and out these sort of subtle uh, mentions of the self. And then when we get to the end, I'm going to, I'm going to kind of really land on it and we'll spend some time talking about what it looks like when, uh, when we worship the, the idols of ourself. But it may be worth this week, coming back to this sermon through our website or our podcast or something like that to kind of uh, put some of the pieces together. All right, I want to start with a verse from Exodus chapter 20, verse 4. This has been sort of our uh, primary text for the series. Uh, this is uh, in the midst of uh, the giving of the Ten Commandments. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below, and what we mean by image is often translated there as the word idol. Now what's happening in this scene is the Israelites have recently, somewhat recently, uh, left Egypt and the control of Pharaoh and enslavement, and they've been wandering in the wilderness, and they find themselves at the base of Mount Sinai. And Moses ascends the top of Mount Sinai, and as he does, as the people are gathered there, the weather conditions begin to change. There's a great storm, the, there are clouds that roll in, there's the cracking of thunder, and the people below are well aware that there is a God on top of the mountain who is speaking to them. And God in this moment gives us his 10 commandments, and these commandments sometimes called like the 10 utterances, they're these 10 statements. And they're intended to be a sort of contract, a covenant. God is saying, if this relationship between us is going to work, there are some things that you're going to have to do. It's God's universe. He designed it. He designed us. And he knows what makes us ultimately happy. He knows what satisfies us. So he's like revealing that to his people. And for the next 10 to 12 chapters... Moses is going to be on top of the mountain, meeting with God, hearing from God his word. And God is going to lay out in exhaustive detail how we should live our lives if we want to flourish. But then Moses and God both become aware that something has begun to stir at the base of the mountain, where the people are. Things have started to get a little, a little weird down there. And in Exodus 32, we find this scene. In Exodus 32, when the people saw that Moses was so long coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. And Aaron answered them, take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. And he took them he took what they handed him and made it into an idol, cast into the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. And then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So Moses has been up on the mountain for a while. 
and Deuteronomy tells us it's been 40 days and 40 nights. And the people begin to grow impatient, waiting for directions, waiting for answers. Does that sound like anyone you know? Have you ever taken matters into your own hands because you got tired of waiting for God to speak or for God to show up? So the people take off their earrings and Aaron melts them down into uh, liquid gold and, in the, and then he fashions the gold into the shape of a calf. And perhaps you can imagine what this scene would have looked like. Perhaps you've seen it in movies. You know, we often imagine like, this life-size cow in the town next to where I grew up, Elsie, Michigan, claims to be the national dairy capital of the world. And they have this enormous cow statue that gets stolen by like high school seniors or something like that every year. And maybe that's what we picture when we think of this verse. But every ounce of available archaeological evidence suggests, every ounce of it, that the golden calf if it existed, would have been about this big. Six inches wide, four inches tall. Almost every idol, every statue that's ever been found was small enough to like sit on your windowsill. Idols never quite live up to the height, do they? We imagine something quite different in this scene. Now, which of the Ten Commandments that God has just given, which of the Ten Commandments are the Israelites breaking here? I'm so glad, I'm so glad that Pastor David pointed out, either in the first or second week, uh, something, uh, 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 he, he pointed out early in this series, something that is far too often overlooked when we talk about this story. The Israelites are not breaking the first commandment, you shall have no other gods but me. They're breaking the second commandment. What we read here in Exodus 32, come, let us make gods for us to worship. The word for gods there is the word Elohim. It's the word, the Hebrew word that is uh, used very frequently to refer to the Lord, to the God of Israel, to Yahweh. In fact, it's the first word that's ever used to refer to the Lord. Genesis chapter 1 verse 1. In the beginning Elohim created the heavens and the earth. The, the Jewish people here are not trying to worship another God. They're trying to decide and determine how they're going to worship. See the second commandment is not about who we worship but how we worship. And we want to have control over that. We want to decide how our life is going to move, where it's going to go. The Israelites are not trying to worship other gods, and this is critical to our understanding of how idols work in our lives. They're rarely like a choice between God or like the devil, right? More on that in a minute. Here they want an idol, but it doesn't stop there. Later in 1 Kings chapter 12, the Jewish people want a king. And once again, it divides the nation. No one can agree who should be king. They want a king like the other nations have. And it's, Israel is divided into a northern and a southern kingdom. And Rehoboam takes the south. He has the city of Jerusalem. Jeroboam has the north. And Jeroboam is, worship, is worried that no one will see him as king because they can't worship in the temple. So what does he do in 1 Kings 12? In the city of Dan, he constructs not one, but two this time, golden calves. And he directly quotes Aaron. He says, come, let us make gods for us to worship. And tomorrow there will be a festival for the Lord. The problem with idols is they're never enough. We always need another one next. The Israelites want to worship Yahweh like other nations worship their gods, with kings, with icons, with statues, and with idols. Not who, but how. But the God of Israel says, I am a different kind of God. 
I cannot be defined by borders and edges, depictions, representations, and images. You don't get to have that kind of control of how you worship me. You don't get to define God. And one of the most fascinating things about idols is that they're not always like obviously evil. They're often quite subtle. I used to listen to this podcast on NPR called This American Life. And it was one of the earlier podcasts that kind of came up. And um, a, a couple of years ago, they, they reached their 666th episode. And this is anything but a Christian podcast. Uh, it's not vulgar. I just mean it's not Christian. Um, but anyway, for this episode, they acknowledge the fact that the number 666 has these like evil sort of under, uh, undertones to it. And so they did an episode about like the rise of Satanism in the 80s. I don't know how many of you remember this. Most of you maybe have forgotten about it pleasantly, but in the 80s, there was this like this odd like outburst of openly uh, worshiping the devil, like the actual devil, not for pretend, like trying to worship Satan. I actually had a, a couple cousins who, in my hometown, there was like a little movement of this, uh, but I had a couple cousins who were like self-professed Satan worshipers. People had no problem with it. Bands were writing songs about it. Uh, not to spin our wheels there, but I, what I want you to know is like idols often aren't as obvious as a decision between worshiping like the dark Lord or worshiping God. Often they're very subtle and they find ways of sneaking in where we don't see them. We would never know that we're worshiping an idol. We just think that what we're doing is we're learning about God, we're understanding God. We want what the other nations have. And in the process, we make God into an image that isn't accurate. Often it's an image that looks like us. We uh, anthropomorphize, I think is the word. Like we make God into some sort of human form. And suddenly God uh, not only looks like us, but he begins to think like us and act like that, like us. And he supports our politics, and he supports our protests, and he supports our prejudices. He, uh, we begin to define what it looks like for us to live the life that he's called us to live. We begin to shape him more than he shapes us. I want to kind of turn a corner here. We'll come back to that idols thing. But I want to consider what is the kind of life that God desires for us to live? And what is the kind of life that we are all pursuing ourselves? What is the good life? What does the good life look like? And what is keeping us from it? I want to show you a, uh, a video. It's a commercial for a beer uh, called Pacifico. I don't know if it's a good beer or a bad beer. No comment on that. But I want you to watch this video. And I want you to try to think about what does this commercial seem to say about the good life? All right, go. The world is full of anchors, meant to keep you in place. But the good news is that it's also full of things that remind you not to let them. So every time you raise a Pacifico, let it be a reminder to live life anchors up. All right. So what are the, some of the more obvious themes that you see in that video about what the good life is? It's adventure, right? It's travel, it's friends, it's good vibes. But there are like, there's a subset of more like subtle statements that I think even just that beer commercial is, is making about what the good life is. First, all of these guys are incredibly good looking, aren't they? Am I allowed to say that? This looks like an audition tape for The Bachelor. Like, they're all hunks. 
And did you see the vehicle they're driving around in? I think that was a vintage Land Rover Defender. Do you know how much those cost? They're like 150 grand if you can find one. And look at where they are. They're in paradise, right? They're in Baja. They're surrounded by mountains and oceans and beaches all at the same time. No attachments, no families. Apparently no one else is there. They have the world to themselves. No obligations. And that's kind of the point, isn't it? Because the last takeaway for that commercial, the last takeaway of those 30 seconds is the message that is apparently being passed from one generation to the next, from father to son. With that small box in the sand in the photo is the father's last will and testament to his son. If I can leave you with anything, son, it's this. Anchors up. The world is trying to hold you down and you can't let it. You've got to cut yourself loose from what's happening around you. This is just one commercial, but this message is everywhere. Culture is defining what it looks like to live the kind of life you are made to live. And it isn't neutral. It's specific and wildly profitable at the same time. You are being held back the message says. There are anchors and they're tying you down and you need to cut them loose. You need to put yourself first. Live a life with no regrets. You need to experience everything in life, everything that the world has to offer. And in order to do that, you're going to have some needs and you're going to have some problems. You're going to need adventure and fun and friends and flexibility and spontaneity and endless options to become the best version of yourself. You need to live a life of sheer wonder. That's the good life. And what's standing in your way? The same old things that have always been standing in our way. Rules and traditions and responsibilities and relationships, even religion. It's our party. We can do what we want. We can't be tied down. Not only do we have like FOMO, right? Fear of missing out on great things. We have FOBO, fear of better options. That like even if we're doing something great, someone else might be doing something better. And our life needs to be the best life available. I have one life and it has to be spectacular. And anything that stands in my way is an anchor. So I'm gonna live for me. I'm gonna take care of my needs. I need to put my needs first. We're really clever with it, right? We even say things like, well, you know, on an airplane, you got to put the mask on your own face first before you can help the person next to you. And we use that to justify like this self-obsession that we have with ourselves. I was in uh, Target last week with, I have a six-year-old daughter, and we were walking through the toy section. And uh, on one of the end caps, there's a new line of Barbies. Do you know this? Within the last couple weeks, self-care Barbies. And you know what it says right across the front of the box? You can be anything that you want. This is the cultural message that is being shouted at us. If you want to know how to, how to live the good life, you need no, like, no attachments, no limitations. You need to be able to do whatever you want. How did we get into this situation? Well, let's kind of reverse engineer the problem. Shortly after World War II, life in America changed very rapidly. And suddenly... Uh, especially for the lives of like the children of the wealthy elite. Suddenly, uh, young people in California and New York, they could just reject the traditional paths of life and they could just follow the fun. They could do whatever they wanted to do. And so they did. They never had to grow up. 
They had no jobs, they had no bills, they had no responsibilities, and so they partied. And they did an extremely uh, large amount of drugs. And they did, they had a lot of sex with different people. And they sat around in coffee shops and rolled their own cigarettes while they talked about art. And they could do that because they had no obligations. But no one else could do it. Because everyone else had to go to work, right? Until the clever invention of credit cards. Personal debt. Do you want to go to college but you don't actually care about academics? Perfect. Just sign here. You can be a lifelong student. Do you want to go to Baja, but you don't have the money? No problem. Just take out a credit card. You can go live the best life that all of these other people are living. You just have to go in debt to do it. And it enabled an entire generation, maybe we're on the third generation, of people to live recklessly. Our appetites for fun, for excitement and adventure are out of control. Our appetites always want more. Our eyes are always bigger than our stomachs. And we know this doesn't work. We know about increased demands and diminishing returns. What happens when you get everything that you want? Some of you may remember a, again, non-Christian uh, Guns N' Roses album from the mid-80s called Appetite for Destruction, you sinners. You listen to that. There were about five or six songs on that album that were absolute killers. But it was the title of the album itself that was sort of memorable in its own unique way. Because it revealed a central truth about humanity. We have this appetite inside of us that is out of control. And given enough time, it will destroy us. There's a David Bazan song that does kind of the same thing called Wolves at the Door. And it's this idea that like we invite, we invite inside what has the potential to destroy us and we do it willingly. Our appetites are out of control. I read about the appetites of Icelandic horses recently. Uh, Icelandic horses are generally considered some of the most beautiful, uh, some of the most um, unique and wild horses on the planet. And when winter is coming, these horses will brace themselves for the extremely cold temperature by, um, by kind of like fattening up. As part of the preparation, you know, we put on a little weight for the cold months that are coming. They'll kind of fatten themselves up. Um, so that they can make it until the thaw of spring. But here's the thing. Many Icelandic horses won't make it until spring, and it won't be because of starvation. It won't be because of disease. It won't be because of predators. But what happens is these horses, when they're so uncertain where their next meal is going to come from, their appetite just swells and swells so greatly that many of them will just continue eating and eating and eating, regardless of like what their body is telling them about whether or not this is a good thing. They'll just keep eating and eating until they eat themselves to death. Sing it with me. Bye-bye, little Sebastian. <laughs> they lose control and they're driven only by their appetite. Let me show you what Jesus has to say about an unhealthy appetite. This is from Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 and 28. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Raise your hand if you've heard this, word, this verse before. Good, good chunk of you. Uh, not something I'm making up, right? Um, now, <clears throat> here's what Jesus is not saying here. He is not saying don't have dirty or sexual thoughts when you look at someone. That sounds crazy, right? But that's not what he's saying. 
See, often the takeaway from a verse like this has been mostly directed at men, because men are the only ones who have sexual thoughts, apparently. But also, um, the takeaway has been something like, it's okay to think that a woman is beautiful. But the moment your thoughts begin to take on like a more sexual nature, well, then it's as if you're committing adultery. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. At least not primarily, not initially. The Greek word for lust in this verse is the word epithumia. Can you say epithumia? <laughs> it's like uh, my two-year-old watches Blippy, and this feels like Blippy. Can you say epithumia? Okay. Um, but the word is almost never translated into English as lust. It's often translated as longing or yearning. In fact, the word doesn't have a sexual meaning attached to it. Later on, Matthew in, in, in uh, chapter 13 will say, he'll, he'll, uh, Jesus will be describing you know, all the saints that came before the disciples and he'll say, they longed to see the things, they yearned, they epithumia to see the things that you are seeing. There was no sexual nature to it. In the parable of the prodigal son, we read that he longed to fill his, his belly with the pods the pigs were eating. There's nothing sexual about it. It's about an appetite. And what happens when appetites become unhealthy? Of course, adultery is forbidden. And of course, like looking at someone lustfully is forbidden. But to reduce this to a conversation about sexual urges is to miss the point. Adultery is only a symptom. The disease is an out-of-control epithumia. 350 years before Jesus was born, the philosopher Plato would take an attempt at trying to understand the human soul. He divided it into three parts, the highest of which was the logos. Now, the logos is the center of like human thinking and reasoning, the center of knowledge. It's the part of our brains where we store information. We think critically here. And in the human body, the logos is often represented in the head. It's the highest part of the platonic soul. But the lowest part of the soul is a word we've been kicking around for the last few minutes, the epithumia. Again, this is hundreds of years before Jesus is talking about lust and yearning and longing. And the epithumia is like the irrational seat of appetite in our bodies. It is um, the center of like the drive for pleasure and sex and, and, and power and fame and food and money and drink. It is, it, it's completely irrational. It doesn't know why it wants the things that it wants. And it doesn't care. It just craves. It aches. It longs. It wants what it wants, even if it's destructive. And because it's sort of incapable of distinguishing what's good and what's bad, it's designed to be uh, governed by the upper two tiers of the soul. In the human body, the epithumia is often represented in, oh, you can't see it on that side screen. Uh, it's often represented in sort of like the abdomen, right? Like appetite, stomach area. And then also, no way to do this without making it weird, but like sort of like the groin, crotchal region. Uh, don't make me blush, but you know what I mean, right? Like the food and sex are these really strong urges that we have and they can get out of control. That's the epithumia. It doesn't know what it's doing. It just does it. And in the middle of these two is the thymos. The thymos is like, it's the emotional center of the human soul. It is our spirit. It is intended, uh, we, we, uh, this word is often translated heart. When we, it's, it's like the, 
the, the seat of like courage and will in your life. And we, we sometimes say things like, um, uh, she showed tremendous heart or he showed tremendous courage. It's like this, it's, it's where our passion lies, our will, our heart, like this drive that we have, right? So can you start to see what Plato saw in that, uh, and again, uh, the thymus is represented in the chest heart region, right? So what Plato saw was the human soul works best when all three of these are working in harmony with one another. But the fear is that the epithumia will get so out, it's the strongest, so it'll get so out of control and it'll just desire what it wants that if it isn't checked, it'll pull with it the thymos. So now you've got like this deep, irrational desire and you've got all the passion and heart in the world to accomplish it. And when that happens, our appetites lead us into really unhealthy places. And sometimes it looks like lusting after a woman, and other times it looks like worshiping four-inch tall golden calves, and other times it looks like whatever it is that's happening in your life. Today I want to talk about what it looks like when it takes the image of self-care, obsessing about ourselves, the idolatry of the self, in sort of the evolution of appetites and idols. In the Old Testament, the people were a bit obsessed with idols. And in the New Testament, they were a bit obsessed with uh, traditions. Uh, We do things the way that we do things because we've always done things that way. And this is constantly what Jesus is fighting against, right? But in modern times, overwhelmingly, I believe, we are struggling with the idolatry of the self. Maybe it's a bit of a nod to uh, Gnosticism and and this belief that there is like a hidden secret world out there that we just have to mine uh, deep enough to find it and then all of our lives will be better and solved. But we have become tremendously obsessed with ourselves. Like never before. Everywhere we turn, we're being sold that version of the good life and we're even some of us in the church, we're being convinced that it's true. It's a lie. You would probably tell someone else it's a lie, but we find these ways of believing it for ourselves. We're being held captive by um, the idolatry of self, which causes us to think much about ourselves and much of ourselves. We think we're really, really special, and we think it all the time. It's true that many of us are living a life where we are um, maybe burdened with anxiety and fear and insecurity and depression and, and busyness, like running around frantically. All of those things are true. But we're being convinced that the solution to those problems, the cure to that sickness, is to spend more time focusing on yourself. Turn inward. Take care of yourself better. And I don't know that we've considered the possibility that it's, self-defeating, that the more we focus on ourselves, the more we are driven and called and urged to focus on ourselves. The more that we feed this beast, the more the beast needs to be fed. And so we practice yoga to center our minds, and we go to therapy to help with the anxiety, and we drink kombucha for our gut health, and we diffuse with peppermint for our headaches, and we go to CrossFit to do the workout of the day, We block out me time, time to love ourselves, 
like no generation that has ever lived. We take better care of ourselves than any human who, have, who has ever lived on the planet. By far, nobody was even close to this obsessed with themselves. But again, we have really good ways of justifying it. But I need to care for myself. And you do, to some degree. But I think it begs the question, like, is it working? Do you get the sense that we are a happier people? A less divisive people? A kinder people because of all of the time that we spend with our self-care? Have your lives actually gotten less busy? Have you actually had less anxiety? Maybe in episodes. But it hasn't been my experience that the people I meet who practice the highest amount of self-care are the happiest, most joyful, well-rounded people. In fact, it's often the opposite. And it's been my experience that the person who, the people who are most interested in the care of themselves don't have enough energy or time left over to bother themselves with the cares of others. Of course, none of these things are bad, except maybe kombucha. But like, if, I don't even know if I'm, I honestly don't even know if I'm saying that right. Is it kombucha? Kombuka? I don't know. It's gross. It's disgusting. It grows. It's essentially mold. And then you drink the water. Of course, none of these things are bad, though. And that's been this series. Whether we're talking about sex or money or safety or maximization, of course they're not bad. But what happens when your appetite is out of control? What happens when you begin focusing on uh, secondary issues and making them primary issues? You know, I don't meet people who do CrossFit that exhaust themselves for the gospel the way that they exhaust themselves for their workouts. I don't. The people I know who talk the most about yoga, I don't hear them talking about how much they read the Bible. I don't. I'm just being honest. I lived in a very progressive city for about six years, 10 years in total, two different times. I watched it over and over again. The people who are obsessed with themselves, that's all they talk about. And they've learned to do it in really subtle ways. I don't meet people who talk about the benefits of prayer and fasting as much as they do like the benefits of lavender oil. I just don't. There's nothing wrong with any of these things, of course, right? You know this. But there's a shift that's happened. And here's one of the biggest problems is the more that we focus on ourselves and caring for ourselves, here's the problem. This is a big one too. It's entirely in contradiction to almost everything that Jesus said, almost everything that he said or taught. All of it to a people who were living in abject poverty and who had been enslaved for 400 years in a row. And he wasn't telling them, you know what you need? More me time. You're just not spending enough time loving yourself. That's not what he said. It was the opposite. You've got to stop thinking about yourself. That is a lie. That is not the good life. That is not how you find purpose and meaning in your life. You've got to stop. Matthew 16, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. This is one of the few verses, oddly, one of the few verses that shows up in all four gospels. All four gospels, uh, Luke 8, no, Mark 8, Luke 9, I think John 12, is, it's there too. It shows up in all four places. All of the disciples believe this is something that Jesus wants you to know. If you're trying to like, like invest in yourself, you will lose yourself in the process. But when you start to give yourself away, you will find the person that you were born to be. 
If you want to know like the cure for all of those inner deficiencies that I mentioned earlier, it's not in spending more time on yourself. It's in finding ways to give yourself away for others. Do you want to know how to live the good life? Let it go. Get off the treadmill. There's nothing for you there. Serve others first. Lay down your life for one another. Pour yourself out for the pain you see in the world. In the world. Feed the hungry. You know, there is a family. I can't see him here. There's a family in this church. I won't mention them, but every Christmas, the first thing they do before they do anything else, mom, dad, and kids, the first thing they do before they do anything else is they go down to a local rescue mission and they feed the people uh, there that morning who aren't having the best Christmas of their lives. And then they come back and they open presents and eat and they do that stuff later. Let me ask you a question. When those kids are grown up, what do you think they're gonna remember about Christmas? Do you think it's gonna be uh, like all of the gifts that they wanted, being able to kind of check that box? Yep, I got everything that I wanted this year. Do you think that's what they're gonna remember? Of course not. It's impossible to remember those things. We never remember the things that we get. We only want more. That's our epithumia. What they will remember is their mom and dad got them out of bed and they told them about a different way of living. And they said, the world's gonna tell you that what we're supposed to do this morning is to sit home and open presents and shout and be excited about all of these things. But that is a lie. The world that we're created, the life that we're created to live is a life of service for one another. Healing the sick, visiting those in prison, caring for orphans and widows. Give yourself away. That's the formula. If you wanna know the secret, Jesus will demonstrate this even to death on a cross. If you wanna know the secret, to how to live the life you were created to live, to how to like actually take care of yourself, the secret formula is give your life away. You think about the person that you admire most in life. You think about the person that you wanna be someday when you grow, grow up. The person who has the kind of family you wanna have someday. Which good life, which version of the good life do you think that person pursued? The people that you respect and admire the ones that we all love to talk about. We cry at their funerals when they're gone. What kind of lives did they live? Were they investing in themselves? No, of course not. They're the kind of people who gave everything away. And, and their family members and their friends questioned them about it at times. Are you sure you want to do this? Aren't you tired? Don't you need rest? Don't you need to take care of yourself? And you know what they did? They said no. They just kept pushing themselves in, pushing themselves in. I'm gonna invest in the lives of others. That's what's gonna make my life great. And they are right. They're right. Our idols are trying to rob us of this and God's calling us to lay it down. Can't live that way. In just a minute, we're gonna, a lot of you are here for this this morning. In just a minute, we're gonna spend some time in baptism baptizing some folks. It's my absolute favorite ritual that the church does. It's the best church ritual ever. And I hope you will join with me in screaming and shouting and celebrating for these people. Some of you will join with me in weeping and crying when I see what has happened. But one of the best things about baptism, one of the reasons we cry is because of this. Because this symbolic act is a statement. It's a statement. In baptism, we are dying to ourselves so that we can be raised again in Christ, right? We, we submerge ourselves under the water in death 
so that we can be raised to life in Christ on the other side. That's what it means. The old you doesn't exist anymore. The one that feels like it has to cater to every like inclination and pleasure, and just, that part of you is gone, and now you're raised to life as something new. That's why we celebrate it and shout it. The spiritual work has been done for these people. Now we're going to symbolically make that statement to everybody else in the room. It's the best ritual ever. It's what all of this is about. Die to yourself. Give your life away. It is the only way you can find what satisfies you. God knows he created you. He designed you. Let's pray. God, thank you for this series and for this morning and for an opportunity for us to examine those things that have become idols in our lives, that those unhealthy appetites, Lord. In this room, Lord, we'll, maybe there's someone who, who's realizing for the first time that they're further from you than they thought they were. And they need to make a decision to surrender their life to you again. Maybe for the first time, there's someone in this room who needs to surrender their life to you. They've been living for themselves. God, if that's the case, I pray. I pray for that soul. That they would pray those simple words, Lord, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. I love you. Welcome them into the family, Lord. For those who are being baptized this morning, God, we celebrate and we rejoice. What a beautiful ritual you have given us to remind ourselves that we are raised to life in you. God, be present in the rest of our service. We pray this in your name.